following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. It's good to be back with you this week. I was enjoying a weekend away with my family last weekend with my boys, celebrating Lisa's birthday. It's nice to know with absolute confidence that the pulpit will be well cared for, the word uh, properly divided and communicated, and uh, Jason did a great job last week, and we really are. I've heard from so many of you this week. We are blessed as a church to have so many uh, men who can come uh, and can serve in that capacity, and it is a great uh, comfort to me to know that it is well cared for when I'm gone. This morning, we're continuing on in this series on the Reformation on the solas, the alones, the onlys of the Reformation. Uh, This Protestant Reformation that took place back in the 1500s, beginning in 1517 when Martin Luther, a young priest, nailed upon the doors of All Saints Chapel in Wittenberg, uh, Germany, uh, the 95 theses that he had written as a way to begin a discourse, a way to begin a dialogue uh, with the Roman Catholic Church, Uh, to say that there were things that he had found as he studied the scriptures that were transformative in his mind, uh, that radically transformed him as a man, that led uh, to what he would say his deep and true conversion uh, when he realized that salvation came uh, through Christ alone, uh, by grace alone, in faith and through faith alone, and that it was from the scriptures alone that had the ultimate and final authority within the life of the believer It didn't mean that there weren't other places of authority, but that this was the ultimate authority and that it should be within the hands of God's people in their language uh, to be read, to be understood, to um, to be taught, and to be digested. And that when we come and we understand Christ fully, of who Christ is, that we then recognize our salvation by grace through faith, that we live our lives soli deo gloria, all to the glory of God. And that the Reformation wasn't just ecclesiastical. It wasn't just about the church. The Reformation uh, had waves and shockwaves into all parts of culture and society. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, this idea of a Protestant work ethic that when the individuals came to understand that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and they were now justified uh, and free from the wrath of God, in, and they were made and adopted as sons and daughters uh, of God, and that they could then live all of their life, not to gain God's favor, but live all of life fully within God's favor, uh, that they understood to work uh, and to understand that they had what was called a Protestant work ethic, that they worked out in this way. And it was amazing what happened in Europe and then through the different countries uh, that began to take it on. And so we come this week looking at Christ alone. Hopefully you picked up on that theme a little bit within the songs that we've uh, chosen the creed that we've read, that we want to highlight something this week, someone this week, and it is Christ alone. And the best way to understand this within the context of the Reformation was to change the word alone to and or plus. That within the 1500s, it was Christ plus your good works. It was Christ 
and the sacraments. It was Christ's work plus what the church did on your behalf or what you did for the church on your behalf. And so we come to what was, and this in that day, absolutely revolutionary. But in this day and age, matter of fact. And so the challenge for me this morning is to make exciting something that has become rote. To make interesting something that you go, yeah, 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 I got it. And you can recite. But does it take up residency within your heart? Does it move you and motivate you? Does it astonish you in such a way that it radically changes you in how you view yourself and others and view God, viewing sin, viewing the life that God's given us to live, even the hope of heaven are radically changed when we have a proper understanding of Christ and they're radically destroyed when we don't. So let's go to the Lord now and ask his blessing on this time. Let's pray. Father, we come now this morning and we ask you to bless the reading and the hearing of your word. We ask that you would teach us these things which are so foundational, which may seem so yesterday, but they are so important for today and tomorrow and into eternity. And I pray that we know them and we build upon them. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. The text that we're going to use, at least as a jumping off point this morning, is from the writer of Hebrews, looking at a couple of verses in chapter 9, and then picking up on several verses in chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28, and then picking up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, you have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, Our bodies washed with pure pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. 
Amen. What we're talking about today seems for many of us here basic. You've got it. You, You can recite these things. But as I said, in the 1500s, it was radical. And they wouldn't have understood. They would have been amazed. The people would have heard these things and asked questions like, you mean I don't have to go buy indulgences in order to save my loved one in purgatory? And the answer would have been no. You mean I don't have to perform all the sacraments of the church in order to be saved? And the answer would have been no, you don't. You mean that that. Christ was offered once for all at Calvary and that the Mass uh, isn't a a re-sacrifice of him every single time that he was once for all and that what we celebrate uh, at the Lord's Supper uh, is a a beautiful picture of the presence of Christ, uh, of what has taken place for us, but it's really bread and it's really wine and it doesn't change into body and blood, and that he's not really there physically having to suffer again on our behalf? He would have said, no. He didn't have to suffer. It was once for all. The people would have been amazed at what was taking place. They would have said, "So, so Christ, fully God and fully man, substitutes himself for me. With all of my messed upness, he gives his perfection on my behalf. And all I have to do is believe by faith in this incredibly gracious gift. And I get to go to heaven. I get to be called a son or daughter of God. I am perfectly clean, never to be lost. You mean there are no mortal sins that I can have that I'm going to lose my salvation over? And they would go, absolutely right. They would go, that's too good to believe. And Luther would have gone, absolutely. And then Luther would have preached this sermon over and over and over again. Because Luther was convinced that we need to preach the gospel message every single week because churches forget it every single week. But you see, one thing that we have in common here is that we're all recovering legalists. We're all recovering Pharisees. That we could walk in the door as you would within an AA meeting. And when you walk into an AA meeting, the salutation is, Hello, I'm Bill McCutcheon and I'm an addict. And the response would be, Hello, Bill. And we could walk in every week and go, Hello, I'm Bill McCutcheon. I'm a recovering works righteous person. And you would say, Boy, I feel loved. Hello, Bill. Gosh, you're weird. Man, you believe that you add something to your salvation? And the answer is, yeah, all the time. And so do you. Because I promise you this. Here's a little litmus test for you. You got up this morning. You got the children ready. Those of you who have them, they look pretty nice. There were small arguments along the way. 
There were probably some little arguments between you and your spouse, but you made it here. And some of you went to Sunday school this morning, and that's awesome. And you made it here. And some of you gave money this morning, and that's awesome. And you made it here, and you look good this morning. And you're going to go home, and you're going to go out, and you're going to get into a wreck, and your car is going to get totaled. And you know what your thought's going to be somewhere deep down? Really, God? I went to church this morning. You know what you're saying? I added something in here, God. You owe me something. I, I went to church. I even gave money on the gross, not the net. I went to Sunday school. I got my kids there. God, you owe me something. I've lived a good life. You owe me better than I have. God, I'm a good person. We all have it at some level within our lives. Studies, Barna has a study out that says that 80% of American evangelicals, 80% believe that man inherently is good at his heart, that man is innately good. A similar number, roughly 77%, believe that the role that Jesus Christ plays within the life of the Christian is to help them towards salvation. Do you see a problem? Luther would go, what? You've got to preach this gospel. You've got to preach this truth because man is inherently lost, dead in their sins and trespasses, and are desperately in need of Christ, not to help them along the way, but to save them fully. Not to stand as a parent, as we described a couple of weeks ago, going, come on, Junior, you can make it walk across the room, and there's a toddler stumbling around, and Jesus, God the Father, is standing there, come on, and Jesus, the big brother, you know what he does? He comes along and and steadies you, and he walks along with you. He holds your hand to get you to God. That's what 80% of people within the church today, the church today, believe. Luther said, you're a caterpillar in a ring of fire. And the only way to get out of that ring of fire is for someone to reach down and to pick you up and to set you outside. What a poignant picture, huh? And what a massive difference. And so this sermon though basic in many ways, is one that is absolutely essential. For I sit and I look around within the church of Jesus Christ around the world, and I'm haunted at some level by the words of Paul, who said, if there is another gospel that is preached, which isn't a gospel at all, then there is no salvation. I was with a friend this week who said within South Africa, There's a movement in the apostolic church that basically says this, that the leaders of the apostolic church, if they just lay hands on you, then you're saved. You don't need Christ. You just need the apostles' touch. That's no gospel. And thousands of people are believing that they're saved because of a false doctrine. Within our own churches in America today, they're saying, don't preach, don't preach sin. Don't ever preach that man's lost because that would be offensive to man. Is it offensive to you if I say that you are worse than you want to believe that you are? Are you offended by that? Well, sure we are. And so the best way not to offend one another and make sure there's lots of people coming to church is not to say offensive things. And so we say, you just need Jesus in your life to make things better. You just need Jesus to hold your little toddling hand as you make your way towards heaven. But folks, that's a different gospel. 
And if it's a different gospel, then it's not a saving gospel. And so the writer of Hebrews and Luther and Calvin and Knox and all the men and women who have preached this gospel would say this. Listen to a very basic sermon this morning and let it take root and then build upon it. So here's the basic outline of the sermon for you today. There's a problem, there's a solution, and there's a benefit. There's a problem, there is a solution to that problem, and there's a benefit for you uh, if you'll accept the solution. So here's the problem, and it comes so subtly, haha, subtly uh, in verse 27 of chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once. Oh, here's the problem. You and I have something in common. We're going to die. Cheer up. (laughs) Isn't that, I, I read a book on philosophy one time, and it said that the heart of philosophy and religion is the same thing. It's how to deal with the problem of death. How to deal with the fact of the matter uh, that everyone is going to die, with the exception of Enoch and the exception of Elijah uh, and Christ in the Bible. Everyone else is going to die. Lazarus died twice, but everybody's going to die. And so we have to deal with this fact that we're going to die. And so philosophies and religion are created uh, to come up with what is going to happen. And for some, it says you're just going to clip off. That there is no existence beyond this world, uh, that you just go into nothingness. Others say uh, that everybody gets to go to heaven, that heaven's this wonderful place, and that everybody gets to go there. And heaven is the creation of whatever it is that you enjoy in this life. So for some of you, you finally get a hole in one. For others of you, you finally get to catch a fish. For others of you, whatever it may be, uh, you get to go, and that's what heaven is for you. It's your utopia. But the Bible says that when we die, we have to stand before a creator. Because everything that we experience in the world has been created. That it didn't happen by primordial ooze and a cosmic algorithm coming together and somehow creating the complexities and the beauties of humanity and everything that is created. But there was a creator who created all things for his glory that all things would point to him, and that mankind, ever since the fall, chapter 3 of Genesis, scene 2 of the cosmic drama, uh, that it has all fallen and broken apart, that now man has been working to take away glory from God, of saying, God, you're no longer the center of the story. Uh, You are no longer the most important character. You're no longer the penultimate part of all that is coming on. I am. That this is a story about me and about my life and about my lineage and about my heritage and about my future. And so now you have mankind with this, in this incredibly unpopular position today of one day having to give account for their actions before the creator who said, I designed you to bring glory to me and you spent your entire life bringing glory to yourself. We have a problem. There, there is a problem. That you determined that you could live your life however you want to live your life. That your standards, not mine, are, are most important. And so you discarded me. And all of us find ourselves in that problem because we're all humanity and human beings, men and women. And so all of us are going to have to stand one day. And that's why in the medieval times, it was great to have purgatory. 
It was a holding tank. Think of it this way. It's a cosmic timeout that you just had to go sit over there for a certain undisclosed amount of time. And then when God had determined that you had done enough either there or that your loved ones back on earth had paid enough and done enough through prayers for you, then you got released and you could eventually go into heaven. But there's no purgatory. It says that it's been designed for man to live once, to die once, and to stand before God and give an account. And what are we giving an account of? We're giving an account of our life. We're giving an account of how we've lived our lives before God to his glory or to our own. And you see, we can live to our own glory in two different ways. One is that we throw out the law altogether. We live however the heck we want to live. Or we live for our own glory by doing everything the law demands. That either way, legalism or non-legalism on both ends of the spectrum are basically saying that we get to determine that I can do all things, therefore I'm saved on my basis of my works, or I don't care at all about any of it. But at the end of the day, it's still about us. So we have to stand before God. And a couple of weeks ago, I want to make sure that I clarify something that some may have misunderstood. I made the statement, and it is a true statement, that judgment is based upon works, that we are saved by works still. And the fact of the matter is this, somebody has to present a score of 100% in order to get into heaven, that God is going to stand and say, okay, I need to see your work, I need to see your resume, I need to see everything about your life. And he, we hand it to him, and if it is anything less than 100% based on his standard, not our own, then we're in trouble. So here's the question for you. How are you doing on that? Has anybody messed up this week by your standard or God's standard? I'll expand it. This month. Okay. There you go. Some of you are like, I'm not sure. Lack of self-awareness isn't a sin, but it's something you need to deal with. But, um, but, but we all mess up. And so we find ourselves equally in trouble in this judgment moment. And so all of humanity has to present to God perfection. And that's where Christ comes in. Because you see, we need an advocate. We need one. We need a mediator who stands between us and God and says, let me help with this transaction, Bill. Here's what I'm going to do. Father, remember we had a plan from all eternity that I was going to come in and to penetrate into time and space and I was going to be born as a man, fully God, fully man, in the mystery of that union and I was going to live perfectly for 33 years under the law that I created in the creation that I called forth and I was going to do it absolutely perfectly by your standards to your glory so that I have a record as well. And Father, for all of those whom you gave me out of the world that I'm now going to give or impute, big theological word, I'm going to impute my righteousness, my perfection into them if they believe in me by faith through grace. And so I stand now, and you as a follower of Christ stand in that judgment moment, and God goes, let me see your notebook. And you go, my notebook. Everything you've thought, everything you've felt, everything you've done for the entirety of your life. 
I need to see it now. And he's got his big red pen out. For the Christian, you know what we hand him? Our notebook, which has our picture on it, but it is filled with the perfections in the life of Christ. And he looks and he goes, 100% enter into your rest because we have been saved, not by our works, but by Christ's on our behalf. Does that make sense? It's still by works, but not our works. Now, for the person who rejects Christ, they still have to present a notebook. So if you're investigating this this morning, I want you to understand fully, full disclosure. You're still going to have to stand one day before God and present to him your life. And it's going to probably have a lot of repetition with this word, really. God, I really, really tried. I really, really wanted to do that. God, I really worked hard. I really did this. Now, I know I didn't hit 100, but can you, can you do a curve for us? Because everybody does curves. What kind of professor doesn't do curves? Well, the God of the universe with the perfect standard. And so we have to stand, and we need a mediator, Christ. And so I'm not saved by my works, but I'm saved by the absolute perfect work of Christ given to me, my mediator, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred and redeems it. And so we have Christ as a mediator. You have opportunity to claim someone to stand in your place for you. So there's a problem that we're going to stand there. So what's the solution? Here's the solution, folks. Accept Christ as your substitute. That's the solution. There is a substitute presented. God sees the problem. He sees what's happening. And he says, I'm going to send my son into the world to do this. We cannot be saved on our own. For we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have also believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you think Paul was repeating anything in there a little bit to make a point? No one will be justified by works of the law. He's saying you have to run to Christ because Christ, as our substitute, the solution to the problem, he offers perfect satisfaction On our behalf to the Father, for you and for me, that he lived that perfect life, that he did everything perfectly and to the glory of God. And then Luther again coined the phrase, the alien righteousness of Christ, that it was foreign from me, but it is given to me. And I now am viewed by God as the very righteousness of God, and that it was offered once for all, a single substitute here in Hebrews 9 and 10, and that this offering was acceptable to God. God didn't look at Christ the Son and go, ah, needs to be a little bit more, maybe an addendum. Could you put an appendix on it? It was once for all, fully acceptable to the Father, and he received it from the Son, and now he has given it to those uh, who believe in him through faith. By grace, he has given this salvation to us as a propitiation, as a covering that God now isn't going to judge us. He has fully judged Christ. That's what took place on the cross. 
was the full judgment uh, of God uh, in the substitute taking our place for what we deserve. And that he has accomplished redemption for us. That we are redeemed at a high price by the blood of Christ. That we're purchased and that we're valuable in that way. And so we are justified and that we are adopted. And that the judge now becomes our father. And we have access, and we'll talk about that in a second. But experience for a moment what just took place. Of if you believe these things to be true, if you have said, I believe this, then folks, this morning, I'll go back to my standard. I know you've heard it a million times, but how many of you this morning, when you woke up, looked in some mirror at some point? What was your thought? Child of God, bought at a high price, beautiful. And perfect in the sight of my creator. Loved with an eternal love. Safe and secure in him. With all of the pleasure of my heavenly father given to me. Here I stand this morning. Awesome day. Isn't that what you thought? You're like, man. Okay. Okay, kind of, people have asked me, and they said, Bill, you're, you're losing weight, and I'm losing some weight. Like, how much more are you going to lose? And I'm like, I'm going to lose enough to where I don't have to do this so I can see the green light. And so when I can look down and see the green light, then I'm going to stop losing weight. But right now, i got to do that. And so I look in the mirror and go, dang. I look in the mirror and go, a little bit more gone. A little bit more gray. My son's looked at me and said, nice Oreo on the top of your lip, Dad. I'm like, really? That's great. New gray this year. And we look, and what we see are all the imperfections. And we go out from our mirror, which, by the way, doesn't tell the truth. And then we go out into a culture, which, by the way, doesn't tell the truth either. Because the culture picks up on the mirror's testimony. And it says you're not perfect, and you're not great, and you're not awesome. You're a wreck, and you're a hypocrite, and you're all of these things. And so we believe that instead of believing this truth and accepting it of saying, no, this is who we are. You see, there's a massive problem. And it's a problem that you need to wrestle with and deal with. But there's a substitute. There is a solution given for that that we can receive by grace through faith. And that was taught on so beautifully last week. And I'll encourage you to listen to it if you hadn't. And I believe uh, that uh, now that's up, we're on iTunes now, that you can get it that way if you do podcasts. If you don't know what that is, talk to somebody younger. They'll tell you all about what that is. But, but listen to this beautiful gift of faith that we've been given. And so what's the benefit for us? We have a problem, there's a solution, but what's the benefit? Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
Here's the benefit. You are made perfectly right and new before God the Father. You are perfect and right. You are beautiful. You are fully who you were designed to be. He views you as a father views his child that he isn't just encouraged by you because that means that you're toddling along the way, that he is absolutely 100% in love and proud of you as his child, that you are forever transformed, that you are a new creation made new in Christ Jesus in that way, that there is now a voice that validates you above every other voice, Because we live within a day and age when we're looking for validation. Teenage girls and young women are desperate for validation, that they're beautiful and that they're loved, and they give themselves away to young men looking for the validation of a young man. Parents uh, are looking for validation, and so we look to our children that if our children come out okay, then we're validated as good people. Young men are trying to find their masculinity and they've given over the power to a woman that if she loves him and gives herself to him, then he's validated as a man. That we live in a culture which says if you gain the most toys, you have the most money, you drive the coolest cars, you live in the best places, then you're validated within humanity. And God is going, none of that can validate you. Only my voice does. And my voice to the person who's accepted Christ as his Savior is, well done. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm your dad. I'm your father who loves you with an eternal love. So you can walk in with full assurance into my presence every single moment of every day. Do you want to know why your prayers are accepted by God? Because of the completed work of Jesus Christ who takes your imperfect prayers, my imperfect prayers, and he sanctifies them and glorifies them and sends them to the Father. And the Father hears them and says, yep, this is the voice of my child. Parents, don't you know the voice of your kid? Above all other kids, you hear it. And don't you know, if you're a young parent, you'll learn this. Don't you know the difference in cries? There's the hungry cry, and there's the wet diaper cry, and there's the, I'm just going to be mad because I'm mad cry. And there's nothing you can do. That. And you know because you know. You're the parent. You're the father. You're the mother. You're in tune with that. That's our heavenly father. You have absolute assurance of access to him and absolute assurance of your salvation. You come from different backgrounds. We come from different church backgrounds and social backgrounds and theological backgrounds, but I want you to hear this. What the Scriptures teaches is an absolute assurance that your salvation can never be lost because it was never about you. That if you commit a sin, there's no such thing as a mortal sin. That if you die within the midst of a sin, uh, you're not lost forever and have to go somewhere to get it worked out a little bit, but that Christ covered us fully in this life and in the life to come. That we have absolute assurance of our salvation that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Can death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things in the present, nor things to come. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul would go, no! Now, why would he have to write that down? Because people thought something could separate them from the love of Christ. And I want you to hear 
that nothing can. That you're safe within that. And if you're safe and assured of that, it will give you a confidence to live your life in a way that the world will be amazed. They'll go, you live with such humility and such tenderness, but with such boldness. You live with a contrition and a heart that is tender, but you live with such an assurance. How are these things brought together? And you go, I was dead in my sins and trespasses. But God, rich in mercy, loved me in Christ and gave me this gift. And I believed on that November 1991, 1990 night, and my life has been forever changed. And then I know that I am not perfect, and I know that I am not who I will be. But I do know this. I know whose I am. And I can love more freely, and I can speak more boldly, and I can live in a way that is different because of this. And I have a hope that says I live. And if I die, I die on the day that God has appointed me to die. And I can trust that until then, I will live with zeal and passion for the things that matter in this life. It changes you. These basic things, right? Folks, this is lower shelf stuff for the Christian church. How many of you have heard this in some shape or fashion? That's actually a terrible way to ask that. There are really bad shapes and fashions to this. But but you've generally heard it. But the problem is, do you believe it and live your life coming from that belief system? That we live out of this truth. That we know this truth so well that we can share it with other people. I was reading a book recently It was called Calvinism in the Las Vegas airport. Great title to a book. It was a professor from a Dutch Reformed uh, seminary who was traveling, and he had a layover in uh, Las Vegas. And he said he was sitting there waiting, and the woman came, and she was a prostitute, and she sat down near him, and they got talking. And he asked the question to himself, what does my theology have to say in the middle of the Las Vegas airport? And if it doesn't have something to say to this woman in the middle of the Las Vegas airport, then it's not a real theology. And he began to share Christ to her and the hope of glory to her in the middle of the Las Vegas airport. I had the the fun this weekend of going to Raleigh with my youngest son to a soccer showcase and we're with other families. And we're with a family uh, who uh, goes to another church, but they don't really go to church and they have an interesting theology. And we sat in the lobby uh, of the whatever hotel we were in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, sitting and at some level talking theology at 10 o'clock at night. Are you able to do that? Or, or do you want to do that when you hear someone say, well, I go to mass seven times a week. Uh, that I, I'm working really hard Uh, I'm a good fundamentalist. I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't dance and I don't do. I don't do these things so that Jesus will love me. Do you know this message so well that you can engage lovingly with them and point them back 
to this beautiful Savior who says to your heart, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls. Folks, find rest in this Christ today and only this Christ today. Let's pray. Father, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in our believers' ears. Soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. And I pray that this Christ would be our only hope today. That he would be our strength. That he would be our song. That we would know him and we would throw ourselves fully upon him. That he would be our righteousness. He would be our notebook. And his perfections would be ours. And that we know that one day when we stand before you as all will, that we can stand with incredible, humble confidence because our advocate, our mediator is there with us saying, this one is covered. This one is paid for. This one is your son or your daughter. Not to remind you because you're forgo- you've forgotten, but to establish afresh and anew that reality. To know that we have this hope. So, Father, we praise you today and we thank you for the glory of Christ. In him we lift this prayer. Amen.